Reacting to the world's best science, the Naked Scientist Newsflash. You're listening to the Naked Scientist with Chris Smith and with Katani. Kat, have you ever been the victim of a medical tape accident? I'm not sure. What would you class as a medical tape accident? (laughs) Well, I was quite surprised to learn that every year there are millions of injuries caused by medical tapes, these things used to stick either intravenous lines or tubes and other devices onto patients' skin. And when you peel them off, they can actually bring the skin with them. And this is particularly a problem for little babies and also elderly people because they tend to have very frail, thin, papery skin because it loses a lot of its elastic tissue and its collagen. So why does this happen? Well, the answer is that the medical tape, the adhesive, is actually requiring a bigger force to detach it from the skin than it takes to pull skin off skin. So we need to change that. And there is a paper in the journal PNAS this week that may hold the key. It's by researchers Jeff Karp and Robert Langer. They're at MIT and Harvard in Massachusetts. And they have come up with an easy peel medical tape. And the way this works is very simple, and I can't believe no one thought of this before. They take the standard tape, which is usually a backing, usually of a polymer called PET, and then the glue stuck to that. They have put a layer between those two, which they refer to as as a release layer, RL, and this releasing layer is a very thin layer of silicone, and it's very slippery. So the adhesive wouldn't normally stick to it and the backing wouldn't normally stick to it. So what they do is they etch it into a grid pattern and then the backing can see the adhesive through the grid a little bit and it sticks a little bit. And that means when you put the tape down, the glue can actually spread the force all the way over the backing. So it's very strong in three dimensions when it's on the skin surface. But as soon as you lift it up, because of that point of weakness between the backing and the adhesive, it splits along that plane, rather like you're breaking slates apart, and easily comes off. And it then just leaves a layer of glue on the skin, which can very simply, the researchers say, be removed by rolling a finger backwards and forwards over it. And they say, and in fact they've got this beautiful demonstration on YouTube, what they do is stick some normal skin tape, medical tape, on a piece of tissue paper, and then next to it they put their new tape. They rip off the piece of tape which is on the uh, tissue paper, and it's unharmed. You rip it off with the normal skin tape, and it pulls the tissue paper to pieces. So it really does work. Oh, but what would you do? Just, like, put your teeth and rip it off? You don't have to do that anymore. No, the the whole waxing phenomenon's over. (laughs) Well, now, this is a lovely story that's been in the news this week. Now, Dumbo the elephant may have been able to fly, but he was fictional. Now a team of German, US, Korean and Sri Lankan researchers believe they may have found an elephant that can talk, or at least make vocal sounds that convincingly resemble human speech. So who is this amazing elephant, and um, what can he do? Well, this talented animal is called Koshik. He's a 22-year-old Asian elephant who was born in captivity and moved to Everland Zoo in South Korea when he was just three years old. But he's been the only elephant in the zoo since 1995. And writing in the journal Current Biology this month, Angela Sturger and her colleagues recorded clips of Koshik making unusual noises, which his trainers thought sounded like Korean words. So they played them to 16 different native Korean speakers to see if they could pick out words which he was apparently saying. Now, the scientists found that Koshik can imitate at least five Korean words pretty well, including hello, which is Anyong, uh, no, which is Ania, and sit down, which is Anja. Though his vowel sounds are apparently much better than his consonants. And we've actually got a clip here of Koshik's trainer saying Anyong, or hello in Korean, followed by the elephant himself. Anyong. 
Well, yeah. It's not too bad, is it? <laughs> I, I think I could I can understand that. Not that I speak Korean or anything. But how does he do it then? How does the elephant make those noises? Well, elephants' mouths are very different from our own. Their vocal tract is much longer than ours. They make very different sounds in different ways. But to imitate the sound of human speech, Koshik actually puts the tip of his trunk into his mouth to change the shape of his vocal tract. And this has never really been seen in an elephant before. And the only other animals that are known to change their vocal tracts in this way are orangutans who use their hands or they use leaves to change the sounds that they make. So why would the animal want to imitate the person? It's not that common to hear of elephants doing the equivalent of your parrot, is it? Well, not really. This is the first time uh, someone's documented an elephant mimicking human speech, although there's some unconfirmed reports of an elephant in Kazakhstan that can apparently say Russian and Kazakh words. But there's a few other animals. Obviously, you mentioned birds. We know that minor birds and parrots could talk. But there's also a lovely case of Hoover the seal, who was taught human phrases by a fisherman. Why is he called Hoover? <laughs> um, I have no idea. <laughs> and a, a beluga whale called Lugosi, who could say his own name. But actually, it's interesting that attempts to teach chimps to talk um, or to imitate our speech have actually failed, even though their vocal apparatus is really similar to our own, suggesting it's not what you've got, it's basically what you do with it that counts. It's, um, it's something to do with the way your sound perception and production pathways work. But as to why an animal might want to imitate human speech, it's kind of hard to know because uh, they can't tell us. So the researchers suggest that the fact that Koshik was reared in captivity, he's been the only elephant in the zoo for a long time, that might have something to do with it. And in the wild, animals, including elephants, they mimic each other's vocal sounds as part of forming social bonds and groups. So maybe he's just trying to bond with his keepers. How touching. Most, most of the time they do that by stealing their peanuts, don't they? <laughs> I think so. Also this week, a uh, very nice paper, again in the journal PNAS, which reveals how fireflies might hold the key to giving us even brighter LEDs. This is researchers at the Korea Advanced Institute of Science and Technology, Jae Jun Kim and his colleagues. What they did was to make some very careful and detailed microscopic studies of the back ends of fireflies. And what they noticed was that the segments of the insect's bodies that don't make the light have a, a cuticle or a skin surface, if you like, which has a sort of ripply pattern, but it's amorphous. There's no obvious pattern there. But then when they looked at the bit of the abdomen that has the light coming out, it's very different. They've got these beautiful ridges and folds in perfect straight parallel lines on that area, which told them there must be something important about this. So they measured them, and they find these ridges are about one seven thousandth of a millimetre tall. And this corresponds to about a quarter of the wavelength of the blue light, which actually comes out of these insects. And this means that their back end could well be behaving like the same sort of anti-reflective coating that we put on camera lenses, for example, which is why when you look at them from a distance, they seem to have a funny shimmery light coming off the front of the camera lens. And what this has the effect of doing is making the output of the light very efficient because it couples the light coming through the abdomen into the air in a very efficient way. So they thought if we copied that design of the back end of the insect, could we use it to make even better LEDs? So that's what they did. They built initially a, a silicon model of the back end of the insect, a bit like a, a mould, with these tiny nanoscale ridges and folds, and then used it to cast a plastic um, dummy of the same thing, which they were then able to turn into the lens that they applied to an LED. The result was an LED that was actually in the region of 3% brighter than any other untreated LED straight away, just by copying the back end of a firefly. That sounds like really cool stuff.
What could you do with it? Well, they say this biological inspiration can offer new opportunities for single-step and low-cost moulded lenses with high transmission power in high-power LED applications like liquid crystal display backlit units, mobile phone, camera flashes, automotive, domestic and medical lighting. So there you go. Firefly informs much better LED. Now, also this week, a landmark paper was published in the Lancet Medical Journal. It was looking at the pros and cons of breast cancer screening. Professor David Cameron at Edinburgh University is one of the authors on that paper. There has been, for some time, a controversy in the area of whether women should undergo regular mammographic screening to try and pick up cancers before they are obvious to the patient or the doctor. The controversy has really ended up with two polarised views, one saying this process works, it prevents women dying early of breast cancer, and another view that says it picks up lots of cancers that never needed to be found, doesn't make much difference to whether women survive breast cancer and therefore should be stopped. So you were then consigned the unenviable task of looking at this data to try to answer that question. Not an easy job to do. How did you do it? We focused on two key points. What were the mortality benefits and what were the harms, particularly the harm of what's called overdiagnosis? And that is a technical term. What it means is a cancer that is found through screening that is a real cancer, but it's a diagnosis of a cancer that would not have otherwise come to light or cause clinical problems in a woman's lifetime. How do we know that a cancer detected at stage X would not have killed that person? For an individual woman, and therefore her individual cancer, we cannot. And so you can only deduce the existence of this group of cancers through the analysis of pooled data, either from randomised trials or from observational studies. And how did you do that? The approach we took was to first go back to randomised controlled clinical trials. The big advantage of a randomised trial is that, provided it's reasonably well designed, the only difference between the two groups of women is whether or not they had mammographic screening. Because what one doesn't want to do, and this has been a, a certain criticism level that some of the data from America, for example, with things like prostate cancer, where America is extremely proactive about screening people and then diagnosing and treating people with prostate cancer, people have said there's a lead time bias. You diagnose people and actually you, you look like you're achieving an incredible response rate, but actually were those cancers not picked up until later and then treated anyway, the people would have ended up with the same outcome. Exactly. And we did look at quite a lot of observational data, and some of the observational studies have been very well conducted in the sense that the authors have tried everything they can to control for things like lead time and underlying differences in breast cancer incidence. But they all tend to rely on some key assumptions, including what would have happened in that population had breast screening not been conducted. And we did an interesting modelling exercise, changing various assumptions, but working on the same data set, and showed you could draw quite different conclusions. Well, how did you draw the conclusions that you did? OK, let me address the question of how we came to the conclusion that breast cancer screening does reduce the mortality from breast cancer. So we took the hazard ratios for breast cancer screening from these trials where we had 13 years of patient follow-up after the end of the trial. Because if you're going to catch a cancer early in order to reduce the chance of a woman's dying from it, you need to measure her risk of dying from breast cancer not just during the trial, but for many years after. And our conclusion was that there was a 20% reduction in the breast cancer mortality in these trials. How many lives saved does that turn into? 
Well, what we then did was to say, let's look and see what happens in the UK where we have a 20-year breast cancer screening programme for women aged 50 onwards. So we took their risk of dying of breast cancer between the ages of 55 and 79, and so we back-extrapolated to work out what the mortality would be without that 20% reduction, which works out at about 1,300 women a year not dying from breast cancer because of breast cancer screening. What about the converse, which is people have picked on the number, which has appeared in the paper in The Lancet, saying, look, there are thousands of people who are now having interventions that they needn't have done. What can we say about that group? We took the same approach, which we started with the randomised trials, but critically, if you're going to measure overdiagnosis, you need to have a control group who are never screened. And many of the studies offered or systematically screened the women in the control arm at the end of the trial. So we took the only trials where there was no exit screening. So that left us just three trials to look at for our estimate of overdiagnosis. So we took these three trials and we estimated the risk of an overdiagnosed cancer. And our conclusion was that in the UK approach to screening, that about 19% of the cancers found during the time of screening would be an overdiagnosis. That translates to a figure of about 4,000 women a year but the precision of that figure is less than the precision for our mortality benefit. But nevertheless, it is a real number of patients who have a cancer that they didn't need to know about. And what are the implications of these numbers? The significance of the overdiagnosis number is firstly that women need to be aware that this is a risk or a price that they have to pay if they're going to undergo screening. They may have something found that wasn't necessary to be found. However, we can never work out who they are so they need to continue to be treated exactly the same way. But it offers an opportunity for research to further explore how we could identify these cancers that we didn't need to discover. From the mortality point of view, our primary conclusion was that the breast cancer screening programme should continue because we felt 1,300 lives a year was well justifying the continuation of the breast cancer screening programme. But the women, when they're invited, should therefore be given a bit more information about the downsides, the harms, a more open discussion about the treatment options when something is found. David Cameron from the University of Edinburgh. Cat. Now, most deaths from cancer occur when the disease spreads or metastasizes to other parts of the body. But we don't really know what's going on at a physical level. What does it actually look like? And now a team from Hubrecht Institute in the Netherlands have developed a technique to allow them to peer into organs within the body and watch metastasis taking place. This gives us really important clues as to how it happens and potentially a way to find drugs to stop it. Now, we're joined by Dr. Jaco van Reenen. He's one of the scientists behind the work. Uh, hello. Hello, Jaco. Hello. So tell me a bit about why you decided to do this. Why can't we look at cancer spreading right now? The big problem is that you would like to see which cells are growing out or not. And uh, what we did before is we, we uh, uh, took, for example, uh, biopsies or tissue sections and we just visualized it on the microscope and we looked through the cells. The problem that, there is that uh, you, that gives you just a snapshot. So you can, for example, see thousands and thousands of cells that arrive in the liver but you, you have a snapshot, so you have no idea which cells will grow into metastasis or not. Of course, you can also look at later stages, and then you can see the tumors that grew out. The problem there is that you have no idea which cells didn't make it and why they didn't make it. So we developed a technology uh, where we labeled the tumor cells in mice, and we could see on the microscopes how these tumor cells arrive in the liver, 
how they grow out into a full metastasis. And that just by looking at this uh, growth, that really gave different surprising uh, findings. So this is kind of real-time imaging of cancer spreading. How, how does it work? How can you actually see into a, a liver? I, I this, you're doing this in mice, I, I guess. Yes. Uh, you can just think of an airplane. So if you look to an airplane and you would like to see inside the airplane, you do not see anything because the light within the airplane doesn't penetrate the wall of the airplane. However, if you now go to the little windows of the airplane and you look through the, the glass, you suddenly see exactly what's going on there. We do exactly the same. So we invented an, a little window, which is uh, exists of a titanium ring with a small piece of glass. And it's very small, but we can implant into the belly of a mouse. And through this little window, we can see what's going on inside this mouse. And we can start really to visualize the individual cells that arrive in the liver and how they grow out. So tell me about some of the things that you can see through these tiny, tiny windows on cancer. So, for example, what we observed is that uh, uh, tumor cells that arrive, not every tumor cell is growing out, but what we observed that the ones that do grow out, they, they leave the blood vessels and they migrate a little uh, bit and then they start to grow. And what you would expect is that if a tumor a cell starts to grow, you expect a little ball of cells that is growing and growing and growing. But surprisingly, what we observed is that the cells... Uh, uh, that, that start to appear after a few uh, uh, rounds of, of uh, multiplications is that the cells do not stick together. They don't form a very dense little ball, but they more form an, a larger ball where uh, uh, the cell density is very low. And then slowly over time, this, this uh, uh, tumor condenses slowly. And if you then visualize over time uh, what the behaviors of the, tu the tumor cells in the different stages. In these early stages where these cells are not really connected to each other, they're, they're moving and they're very motile. And we found that if you block this motility, the, this really blocks the, the growth of this tumor into these uh, uh, bigger tumors. So the key is actually the movement, not just the, the division, the multiplication of the cells. Well, we actually observed that these two things are, are connected. So if you are able to uh, use drugs that, that block this, uh, uh, this movement of these cells, you also block uh, uh, the growth of these cells. And we use drugs that in the laboratory on a cover slip, if we look to cell uh, cultures, if we use this drug, you can see that it stops, they still proliferate. If we now look inside the mouse and we see at these fairly early stages and we use the same drug, you can see that the cells stop moving, but then also stop proliferating, so they stop growing. What do you think that these experiments could tell us about how cancer may be spreading in humans? Do you have hope that these same drugs or developing these, uh, these chemicals you're testing into drugs could potentially stop cancer spreading in humans? Well, I think the most important thing is that this is fundamental research, right? So the, the, we have many questions that we just would like to answer. Is how is a tumor cell growing to a metastasis? And the, our research is just a proof of principle, and, and we see now something new. And whether this holds true in humans, we have to do much more research. Of course, we did just one type of cancer. If you would really want to know whether this helps in the clinic, you have to find out whether this holds true in many types of cancer. But of course, you know, with this technique and our new technology, uh, we have now the ability to really search for drugs that can block a potential new drug targets that we could never really look or, or investigate before. Finally, how did it feel when you actually got this to work, when you could actually see these cells growing and moving? 
that was really amazing. You know, you, you just think about it all the time and you always think about static images. So you think that that's a tumor cell and they're just growing, but you have no idea what's going on there. And when I saw that for the first time, that you really see it moving, that you really can see how it's growing. Uh, of course, it was very exciting, but kind of terrifying as well, because you realize that the mechanism that you see is causing the death of many people. So scientifically, I was very excited, but as just an, an human being, it was kind of terrifying as well. Thank you very much. That's Jaco van Reenen from the Hubert Institute in the Netherlands discussing the research that he and his team have published in Science Translational Medicine this week. The Naked Scientist Newsflash. Reacting to the world's best science. For more information, look us up online at nakedscientists.com.